it basically bankrupted the company. We were like 10 days before Christmas. I'll never forget, I logged into, I think we were using SVB. And not only were we out of money, we actually, I think, owned like 150,000. Because reputation is really hard and it's everything. You know, being a VC, you see all the, the IPOs and the M&As, they, they don't happen that often. So what happens most often is you getting bad news. Hi everyone, I'm Taiki and you're listening to New to Venture. It's the show that uncovers the secret world of venture capital. From the multi-billion dollar exits to the biggest company blow-ups, if you don't know that much about VC, you've come to the right place. It's time to get hype because the one and only Giuseppe Studo has graced our presence. He is one of the most kind VCs in the game, always down to help and mentor the next generation of founders and investors. In his past life, he was a serial entrepreneur where he scaled one of his companies to more than 7 million users in a single year, and then later sold it to DraftKings. Now, he runs 186 Ventures, investing in the most promising startups on the planet. On top of all that, he has recently been announced as Boston Business Journal's 40 Under 40. What can't this man do? Giuseppe, welcome to the show. Thank you. You're too kind there. There's a lot that I can't do. For the record, <laughs> uh, thank you. It's a it's a great pleasure to be yeah. here. With you. Great to have you on, man. It's been a minute since we last met each other in person. I think the the last time was at the One Eighty Six Ventures launch party in Boston about like a year and a half ago. Like a couple of years ago now, almost. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was such a great time. I'm praying for an invite to the Fun Two launch party as well. Yeah, for sure, you're you're, <laughs> you're a lifetime of invites. <laughs> So to get us started, uh, whenever I mention venture capital, someone always asks, how does one even get involved in a space like that? So I found that everyone has their own unique, quirky, crazy path into VC. So how, what was that path like for you? Did you want to do venture right out of college? How did you get here? Mm, that's a good question. Um, now, the short answer is no. I did not want to do venture out of college and i did not want to do venture full-time until very recently uh quite a uh, if i were to be very candid there um I, you know everyone has a very unique interesting in into venture there's different backgrounds and perspectives from which you can come into this this career in this industry and i think that's what makes it uh wonderful there's a great diversity of thought um, folks that come at it from all sorts of different angles and bring different perspectives uh, to being able to support and guide entrepreneurs of um, different you know industries and whatever they may be working on and doing. Now, I guess as as it relates to my road to venture capital, um, it, it was kind of going from as a founder previously. Uh, then I built a company after several um, failed experiments, let's say, um, then sold that and then started to do a bunch of angel investing with a good friend of mine. And then, you know, this is now chronologically in 2018 and late 2018, but still it wasn't clear, uh, nor was it even a thought in my mind then that I would want to be a full-time investor <clears throat> and then went on to be an executive at another company and continued to do angel investing with my good friend through the vehicle 186 ventures and that it wasn't until 2021 when i recognized that 
Um, and I, the, this recognition is the culmination of a couple of years worth of data points. It wasn't just overnight. Uh, but to put it simply, I realized that although there is an unprecedented amount of capital allocated towards innovation economy, uh, whether it's startups, tech companies, whatever we want to call this. Um, and though I saw there was a dislocation to the abundance of quality institutional support and know-how that founders would need to build great companies from the start. So what I basically mean by that is a lot of money being deployed into startups, but unfortunately we're not matching the level of support and know-how needed to be able to effectively manage this capital that's being allocated towards startups, deploying this capital that's being uh, allocated towards startups, and then ultimately being able to prove a return with that cap or all sorts of stakeholders, LPs who invest the capital, and then founders who use that capital to solve the world's largest problems. And that creates a virtuous cycle. This isn't just about helping founders and early team members become very, very rich. And it's not just about helping LPs make more money, right? Um, but it's about galvanizing the entire global economy, right? Uh, startups create a lot of jobs. They create value, um, societal value, scientific value that goes on to prove a return in all sorts of ways that we usually just don't think about, right? And that's what it's about. And that's kind of um, what the, the problem that I fell in love with and my co-founder Julian also did. So he decided to go full-time uh, and build 186 Ventures. Uh, and yes, our primary product for the most part is capital, which is a commodity by definition. Um, but we look at it as much more than that. And we're trying to do our part um, into kind of making sure that we can create a next generation of founders that change the world. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting that you say that because when I talk to a lot of my friends who are younger and newer to VC, they hyper-focus on just the returns on like the balance sheet, right? But for you to mention how there's a lot of, there's a lot of impact that comes with growing the startups, like new jobs, like the, the innovation economy, um, you know, inspires more and more ideas um, and changes the way that we do things and um, makes it easier, makes it easier for a lot of different people to do their job. And so uh, I just wanted to point out that that was like a very mature take that I don't hear very often amongst my, my colleagues that are like new, fresh out of college. Um, but I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into this creation of 186 Ventures, right? So you started off angel investing why did you decide to turn it into your first fund? Mm -hmm. What was what was the turning point for you and Julian? Sure. Well, one, us as a you know, we're best friends, but set that aside. It's not the reason why we decided to, you know, start a venture capital firm, but it certainly it makes it easier. <clears throat> but we um saw just a matter of proof, uh, fair matter of proof points where one, we found that we worked very well together. Um, after having made 30 or 40 investment decisions together, we found kind of like where we both do well, where we shine our superpowers. So that checked the box where, all right, we work really well together and we can really, uh, we're good investors together. 
We then saw a track record in the companies that we backed as angel investors, um, which is good. ROI is very, it's the most important metric oftentimes for LPs and so on. Um, but then third, we, and this is, I think the biggest point, this was the, and this, this ties in with what I was alluding to earlier in my first, whatever I was saying to your first question, which is we, the way founders were talking about our value add and our support relative to the other investors, um, VCs namely that they were working with. So full-time institutional, that's basically what I do was making us think, wow, you know, we're not geniuses by any reach, but whatever we're doing is working and it's rest. It's resonating with a world-class, um, um, roster of founders. These aren't, you know, you know, everyone's great in building companies, but you know, there's a certain level of founders that are, you know, institutional grade, um, investment, investable founders, I like to call them. And we we're talking about with this class of founders, we found that we were doing very well. Our story was resonating well with them and it makes it that much more gratifying. And we said we could really build a strong business here, uh, with a mission that we're okay sticking with for 30, 40 years. Um, so that's really, it was, you know, those, I think those are the primary motivations and validation points that made us, uh, kind of make that decision that, um, we were going to go ahead and just our lives to building this firm. Yeah. There's actually a lot of different directions that I want to take this towards, but for starters, how did you even meet Julian? What's the story behind yeah, that initial friendship? It was, may have been my, was it my first day? It could have been my first day at DraftKings. First, it was definitely the first week. And it was, I think the first or the second day at DraftKings, post-acquisition, obviously, a company that I built, FAM. Um, and we were reporting up to the same uh, division head. And um, we... It was happy hour, I think. Yeah. So every week, I think it was on Wednesday or Thursday, every week DraftKings does what they call, I don't know if they do it anymore, but at the time they had a weekly snack. So where they would, you know, from whatever it might be, Shake Shack or pizzas or whatever, I don't know. And they would and I just put that in the kitchen and they would do a happy hour at like four o'clock or something, um, Thursday or Friday or something. I can't remember. But he, Julian approached me. He's like, hey, I heard, you know, I heard the story um, and I, love spending time with founders and people who build things. So, you know, tell me about your story. And um, we're both big food people. So we said, food, you know, we want to eat here or should we go somewhere else? So that same day, we just went over to this place called the Bark and Craft uh, by the water here in Boston. And we just, we just hung out for a few hours. That's it. And, and we both um, just vibed and, you know, we built a friendship there. We both just had a lot of things in common. And then after about, I think, six months of just hanging out with each other and being friends, uh, we so happened to sit right next to each other, basically, too. We we both, after who knows how many times one of us would bring up a founder or a startup that we met or that we were advising, or that we invested in, we're like, why don't we just start angel investing together? And it just kind of happened that way. Wow. And was, uh, so you said one one. 86 was originally like a syndicate and then it turned into a fund or were you using your personal yeah. 
money for these it was personal right? capital so yeah okay. so okay. it was until we started the fund in the fall of 2021 it was just julian and i's capital no outside lps and then um when we started the fund uh and we we started investing out of it in i think it was october of 2021 mm -hmm. uh maybe which is a 37 million dollar vehicle we yeah. obviously raised that from majority of other folks we're still lps in our own fund uh, mm -hmm. But that was, you know, we raised the far majority of that capital. Wow. Yeah. Well, 37 million for a first fund is definitely on the upper quartile um, from my understanding. So why did you, I'm just curious, what, what did the process of creating that fund look like from beginning to end? So I know a lot of people say VC is very much a sales job because you're pitching your, yourself and your ideas and your firm to LPs all the time. So where did where did 37 million come from? Why did you decide that that was the right number? How did you build your LP network? Take take it how, yeah. however you'd like, but I'd like to hear about the creation of that $37 million fund. Sure. So Julian and I, in the spring of 21, we started, we, we made the decision that we wanted to jump off the cliff together and go full time on building a firm. So that was step one. Step two then was, what's the strategy? So we spent most of, well, all of May and June, if I recall correctly, of 2021, um, constructing our strategy with what we thought would be an effective seed stage investment um, platform. So what does that mean? So, well, we know we want to back founders at the earliest of stages. That's our mm -hmm. DNA. That's what we're good at. So we have experience with and we had some track record with. And we know we, we at least... We're, we're and are highly confident that we could, you know, um, perform investing in early stage startups for founders and LPs alike. So then we said, there's, all right, well, pre-seed and seed, um, if we want to invest, let's say in 25-ish companies, maybe 30 on the high end. Um, well, what do we think would be an ample amount of capital to be able to do that effectively in a way that uh, allows us to lead deals? Because we think it's important that given our backgrounds, we don't have to lead every deal to be clear, but mm -hmm. you know we, we consider ourselves to have a a quite deep level of experience. So in many cases, it makes sense for us to be the lead partner with founders, mm -hmm. um, and then have enough reserves and be able to um, hire one or two people and be able to really build out a firm. Because the way we're looking at this is not we're raising a fund, we're building a firm. Mm. For us, we're not just thinking about all right, what's the right fund for the next three years. We're thinking all right, well. What do we want to be in 30, 40 years that's going to evolve, that will change like anything else, but at least let's put a stick in the ground and, and have an initial thesis and then reverse engineer. So we set a target of $30 million. We thought that was the right number mm -hmm. um, where after accounting for management fees and expenses like audit, tax reporting, legal, and so on, where we would still have an ample amount of capital to be able to, to be a really good partner two early stage founders. So we started, I think, and we kicked off the raise in late July, early August. Um, mm -hmm. It was a lot of, you know, going to personal network and all that. Um, you know, one of the, you know, we, we Julian and I both have our own superpowers. My, my co-founder, Julian, is, is I consider myself to be a good networker. He is the elite networker. <laughs> we, uh, you know, thanks to a lot of his efforts and it was a group effort, we were able to, uh, go ahead and uh, generate a lot of momentum from our former colleagues at DraftKings, 
um, mm -hmm. other folks that Julian and I both knew from from our just you know backgrounds, um, whether it be from my network, having built a company or his network, having done many eclectic things. And um, I think we we hit our target of thirty million within ninety days. Well, that was yeah, that was a little bit yes. of a surprise. Um, I knew we were, we were confident we were going to do it um, in you know reasonable time period, right? Um, mm -hmm. But we we didn't think it was going to be that quick. And um, and obviously, I think the market at the time was different, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think to be clear, you can raise a fund no matter what the market is if you have a good product, but you know, sometimes it just takes longer, right? I would argue if we tried to do that today, it would take longer than it did. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Years ago, whatever it was, two and a half years ago. So we then said to ourselves, well, you know, we kind of told ourselves we wanted to wrap this up by end of year, which is now October. Would we, would we just stop or? So we decided to then, we spent, we then, instead of spending 80% of our time fundraising, we switched it to 80% of our time deploying, but we still mm -hmm. told ourselves for the next two or three months, there's so many folks that we haven't went to who are close to us, who are operators that are building great companies, but maybe they're they're not very liquid yet, but we mm. still get them involved because we think they could be uh, very helpful to founders we invest in and help us differentiate as a brand. So we went to a bunch of those folks and we ended up then capping it at um, whatever we were at at the end of the year, which was $37 million. And we just said, all right, we're done. Time to get to work. And that that's kind of how it all came to be. Yeah, wow. I just want to touch upon like your, uh, you know, Julian and you having these insane networks. So when I was at this launch party, uh, obviously you two were like the celebrities in the room. Everyone wanted to get a hold of you two. And so uh, because you guys were both taken, I figured I'd just go walk around and talk as many people as I could. So at every corner, I would introduce myself and they would be like some of the most accomplished like wisest, um, most like interesting people I had ever met, like all in this one room. And so I just remember very specifically, I was like, I'm, I'm on the right path if I can be filled with a room with these kinds of people. So that was kind of like a game changing moment for me. So um, the room though... was special because of people like you, Taiki, remember that. <laughs> I appreciate that. No, but it was, I was, I was like so hungry to meet everybody. And then by the end of that whole night, I was just thinking to myself, like, this is, this is something special. And I'm, I was so happy to just be a part of it for a moment. Um, but I kind of want to go back to you reaching out to your personal network and trying to get money to raise your first fund. Uh, I'd like to hear some of the stories that came with pitching yourself to LPs. So sure. I had a friend who created his own fund recently or not too long ago, uh, maybe like about two years ago. And he was saying how like at some point they would go on private jets to have these conversations. I'm not sure if that's ever happened, but these LPs have a lot of money. And so mm -hmm. some of these uh, pitch calls I've heard to be extravagant at times. I'm not sure if that, that was true for you, but I just like to hear more about the experience of pitching yourself to LPs because I want to raise my own fund, create my own VC firm one day. So cool. No, for sure. So I think, um, the, 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 I mean, the courting process is, it's really just, you know, kind of most of the conversation we had were with people that we kind of knew already. Uh, I don't have a number of stuff in my head, but let's, let's take a step back. Look at LP construction. You know, we have some institutions and we have, um, 
you know, what we call institutionalized family offices, right? So a family office that is as a team that helps them manage their portfolio and make very uh, highly informed decisions. And then there's the long tail of individuals who just make their own decisions. Uh, they may not even have a family office. It's just their, you know, whatever they have in their bank, they just invest out of like a founder, right? Uh, that's still building their business. So it really, it's, it's a wide array of profiles and personalities. Now, what it was like, you know, it was pretty, not that much, honestly, not that much different than when a founder uh, raises money from a VC. I compare it to, because that's what, that was like what I could relate to, right? Yeah, the same thing. It, it, it's quite literally the same thing where, um, you know, you only know half of what um, the narrative should be. You refine the narrative along the way, right? Like the strategy doesn't change based off feedback you receive, but you know, kind of the type of individual or LP you go to, um, you know, will, will evolve throughout the process, depending on where you are at in the process. Right. So some folks like to see that there's already some validation and traction in the fundraise. Some folks don't really care for that. And so you, you just, um, organize and coordinate accordingly. And some, if I recall, this was, you know, fall of 21, a lot of stuff was still happening via Zoom. So we actually didn't have the in-person we had were with people that we really knew well. But now that I think of it, the majority was via Zoom still because uh, it was like the bit of a hangover from the pandemic. Um, so I don't have too many, I guess, eventful, entertaining in-person stories. When we go out uh, for our next fun, uh, I'm sure, you know, we, we will probably have a lot more stories because that most of that will probably be happening in person. Um, but, but I mean, you know, it was the, the typical, some people aren't interested. Some people are, uh, some people would drill very deep into our track record as angel investors. People would care more about just how we were thinking about things philosophically. Um, so it really all depends. Um, but. Not a very uh, exciting response. Uh, fundraising isn't really that exciting in the grand. Not it's um, you know I I personally enjoy spending um, you know more time with founders. Uh, not you know I I love our LPs um, and I think the LPs would agree that time spent with founders is typically the most productive. But fundraising is it's 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 just you know it's tough. It's really tough. Um, you're just kind of, um, in tunnel vision, you know, mm. and was, was fam venture backed? It was. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, from what I've heard from my founder friends, uh, there's this moment when you finally sign that term sheet and you get that yeah. first, you know, that, that first lead fundraiser, um, for the round and like a huge weight is lifted off your shoulders, but not. Not everything. Obviously, not everything is lifted, but it's like, no. okay, we can finally breathe a little bit. Yeah. Um, and that's like a moment of euphoria, right? Like the, there's these, all these moments of um, of like death and euphoria as a founder. Um, what was that moment like for you, either, either at FAM or at 186? I mean, I think with FAM, the low moment, oh, there were many. Um, but I guess they, well, let's, yeah, I guess to answer question directly, yeah, it was... You know, we, we raised a few rounds um, from VCs 
um, both on the East Coast and West Coast. You know, the first lead term sheet, uh, we signed it with Flybridge, which is a Boston-based team. That was, that was incredible. With uh, Jeff Busking, um, who's based in Boston. And then um, we had some other great backers as part of that round. And then the following round, we had a pretty wide array of backers from NEA, Bessemer, Index, and a few others. Um, now, what I will say, though, is it was certainly gratifying to know that um, we, the, the, our team would now have the resources they need to be able to execute. But, yeah, I mean, maybe a day of, or so of euphoria. And it's then it's it turns very quickly into uh, more I would say healthy stress where it's like all right time to really um, to execute now right and I would say it's the same with raising a fund it's you know it's really exciting to see you know to see people have confidence uh, in what you're doing and believe in you enough where they want to invest with you I mean better than that right it's quite validating and it's very gratifying. But then it's, you know, the pressure is on. This is actually why, um, you know, I'll give two tales. On the FAM side, uh, 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 you know, one stressful point was when, you know, we are, when we launched FAM, when we hit a million users within eight days organically, and FAM for them, you know, it's uh, group video, the first group FaceTime for iOS, 2015 or 2016, actually, if I recall correctly. And we were streaming about 9 million minutes of video per day without knowing. And, it basically bankrupted the company. And I think it was all correctly. We were like 10 days before Christmas. So it was like, it was awful. Um, so yeah, I can't even tell. Yeah. So we, you know, I'll never forget. I logged into, I think we were using SVB. Yeah. We were using SVB. I logged in. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Like not only were we out of money, we actually, I think, owed like 150,000 or something. So I'm like, we're in big trouble. You know, I thought we had whatever it was, eight months of runway. And instead we have zero. Um, obviously, you know, can't just tell your employees that. So my co-founders and I, we got in a room that evening or whatever it was. And I think I was on, it was, I was on a Friday. Um, I think I took a couple of weekend meetings with VCs around Boston that were available. And then I was on the first flight out to SF Sunday night. Uh, and I don't remember much of it, but it's like, Dude, it, it was pure. I don't want to say I wasn't begging, but it was like you just you try to get every meeting possible because it was. And again, and I, I bring it back to it's a low moment, but it was healthy stress. I say healthy, meaning we were in this 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 predicament because our product had blown up effectively overnight. It's pain problem, but it's very stressful though because you get two weeks to make payroll or whatever during the holidays. I mean, I remember one of the VCs that we ended up bringing on board, he was on a satellite phone in Cuba. He was in like a Cuban rainforest or something. It was absurd. So we pulled it off. But then on the 186 side, stressful point is just the, uh, the pressure of having to put that capital to work in a way that is in accordance with your strategy. Uh, process. This is why a, a huge point that a lot of our mentors have drilled into our heads that we uh, live and die by as uh, general partners and fund managers at 186 is don't raise more than you need. It, it sounds simple, right? What ECs tell founders, don't raise more than you need. 
And LPs tell us, VCs, same thing. Don't raise more than you need for the strategy that you're deploying. Yet, um, you know, and, and I, I, I acknowledge that we are, you know, we're on our first fund. We're on our second fund next year. Um, so who knows if we'll be guilty of this. I hope that we won't be. We certainly have no intention to be. But there's a lot of fund managers that end up just raising more than they need. And it creates um, quite irrational behavior where you're marking things up to a multiple that don't make sense because you want to invest 50 million instead of 20 million, right? Um, because that's the work. You can't give a, you know, you can't take 50% of a business. So that's where the valuations went astray in 2020, 2021, is because, you know, if you're a VC and you have a, whatever, $2 billion platform and now your average check size for A's or B's needs to be 20 or 50 million. And you know, you're not going to get a founder to take your capital if you take more than 25% ownership. Do the math. You're artificially setting the price for these startups, right? And this happens down the food chain, even with early stage seed investors like myself. So the point is, as long as I feel like we continue to raise only what we think is appropriate and effective and responsible to be able to provide enough capital in an, in a, in an effective manner to partner and support founders in order to, for them to hit their goals, then the stress can be managed. But it's always about that deploying stress it's the also the stress around um you know just portfolio support and you know companies where we invest the majority of companies probably um won't hit the the goalpost that we want them to right yeah write them to just a law of numbers and law of you know, num startup statistics i guess um that's another there's constant low points there are constant low points. One of our mentors that who's an LP said it best. He's like, you know, being a VC, you see all the, the IPOs and the M&As, they, they don't happen that often. So what happens most often is you getting bad news. It's quite frank. Uh, you know, a startup saying, I can't close this customer. Can you help me? I can't find this senior hire. Uh, we're running out of money. I mean, you know, but that is what we what we are well equipped to do because we've been in those scenarios. So when a founder calls me and says, I'm out of runway by end of next month, I don't have any anxiety. Why? I've been there. It's normal, right? Now, is it ideal? No. Is it optimal? Of course not. But it's just the way it works. And um, and so, you know, we just, I guess, handle that stress differently. We we've We've internalized it in our own experiences. And I think it's, you know, founders, when it, it, when they do, not if, but when they do run into really tough times, their VC need, must be even keel, right? Uh, you know, anxiety times anxiety is just, you know, complete explosion, oh, right? Yeah. I, I can totally imagine if I was a founder in a lot of stress and I go to my VC and I'm asking for advice and they're also freaking out. It's just, it's a yeah, mess. I can't, I can't imagine how that's productive or helpful. Um, <laughs> thankfully, from my founder experience, I didn't have too many, um, but we were very blessed to have the investors that we had. Um, mm -hmm. But I can think back to one or two times where there were folks that I, I think could have been a bit more productive and patient. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, now really looking back and having a bit more experience. And honestly, what happens is I just, you know, you, founders like myself would gravitate away from those folks, right? And mm -hmm. that, the VC 
you have to watch out because founders talk. And if you provide a poor experience, um, you know, they're probably not going to think of you next time they come across to refer, right? Wow. Yeah. Well said. I didn't even think about that. And it goes to show that having the background of being a founder and knowing the ups and downs of being a founder can be super beneficial to how you can evaluate founders as an investor. Um, I think that's oftentimes understated, especially in the world of people who are new to venture capital, right? A lot of people come from a banking background or they come from um, just like right out of college, they don't have that founding experience. So it's sometimes hard to evaluate founders and especially at a pre-seed and seed level. That's like a, a huge part of the job. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, I so I wanted to ask who ended up being, so, you know, you, you look at your bank account, you're down 150K, but you're down 150K for a good reason because your company's growing so fast. So I'm sure some of those pitches ended up being pretty good. It's like almost like, well, this is a good problem to have because we're growing so fast. So who ended up being the lifeline for you? There were a few. Um, there were there were a few. We had NEA that came in. Um, we had our primary, our, our former backers, Flybridge Boston Seed. Uh, then we had a host of new backers come in. Uh, mm -hmm. Index Highland Social Bessemer. Jeez. Wow. Um, well, that's actually a great segue because um, so you just listed off some of the best VC firms ever, right? And so as someone who's creating their own VC firm, I'm really curious to hear what role reputation plays mm -hmm. in this world of startups and VC, right? So everyone who I have a lot of my starter friends who are, you know, currently pre-seed and they all are applying to YC every single year. Sure. Um, and all these all these big name firms is like a, a badge of honor or success for a startup. And like all my friends who want to, you know, be operators at startups, they literally go to like NEA or Flybridge and look at all the portfolio companies. And that's how they decide where they want to start applying. Um, so now that you're creating your own firm from scratch with, I mean, technically zero reputation, zero track record because you're just starting off. Um, have you found that reputation plays a larger role in this startup and VC world? I'm realizing it plays the same as what I thought. Um, and I think this is why we, you know, I'll give uh, an anecdote or I guess uh, a little story. We were starting off, a lot of our peers who are also first time fund managers we're a bit taken back with how much process we were putting in place out the gate in terms of, you know, uh, within what time period we need to get back to founders and tell them whether we're in or not. Within what time period we need to get back to founders who ask us to do something for them, especially if they're in our portfolio. All this stuff. And a lot of people are like, you know, like that's a lot of overhead. And what we said to ourselves was, well, this is what's needed and required to be able to maintain even a par reputation if we were founders, right? So if we're a founder, and kind of reflecting on my own experience working with some of the firms that I mentioned and even, you know, some others that I did not, um, you know, I, I recall the experiences that were positive and productive and helpful. And I recall the ones that weren't. Um, and Julian would do the same. And we decided that, well, Reputation is unequivocally the most important thing. From the moment you take a first conversation with the founder to the moment we say no 
or yes to the moment we close capital to the moment we continue to help them and beyond. And so we knew it would take a lot of work because reputation is really hard and it's everything. So we just signed ourselves up for it. Um, and you know, so I, I, I've kind of known for a long time from my, from my own experience being a founder and now as a VC, that reputation really is everything. We're just talking, not even just founders, LPs, LPs talk. Um, I don't know how many of our LPs talk because we're, we're still a young firm, but now that Julian and I are getting around, we're starting to get to know many others who are, or, you know, institutional LPs or otherwise we're, you know, I'm sure they talk, they talk to founders. And so word gets around very quickly and it's really, it's hard to reverse a bad reputation and, and even with PCs, right? Like it's really important where we're leading around and we want to collaborate with other VCs. Um, it's important for when we shoot out, you know, our notes to folks that they get back to us and reputation, they're probably not going to get back to you or they, or if they will, it'll be two weeks later where it's not really helpful, especially when a rep is moving very quickly. That's so interesting. I'm, I was always really curious to hear what role reputation played and for you to say it's everything means, um, it makes sense to put a lot of effort into building reputation and trust and credibility. And that's something that as someone who's new to venture capital, I definitely have to work on. Um, and I guess what is, you know, besides responding to emails on like a timely manner, what does building reputation look like for you and 186? Is it mostly track record that you're focusing on for reputation or is it more like, uh, just being the, the, yeah. I mean, like you're obviously someone who comes on all these podcasts and you're very friendly. So. Sure. I would say, um, there's a few different vectors of reputation that matters. The, the first is with founders. Right. So your reputation with how you treat them, uh, even you know, the majority of conversations we have don't result in an investment. They result in a rejection. So it's inherently a negative interaction if you think about it. Um, so making sure that you provide a good experience, despite having to deliver news that is negative to a founder is important. And then obviously the founders that you work with, making sure you deliver day in and day out on requests on text messages on phone calls, they send you and so on. Uh, because founder circles are really tight. They talk to each other. And like I was just saying before, they also talk to other VCs, other LPs that are considering maybe investing with us and so on. Then the second factor of reputation is, uh, with LPs, making sure that you're transparent, you are, are prompt in response. You are, you, you provide good, um, in-depth reporting, uh, that provides detail and visibility into how you're investing in LP's capital and then reputation with, uh, other VCs, uh, knowing that you're an upstanding citizen within the innovation economy, knowing that, um, you know, maybe, you know, a thing or two about comp picky companies and, uh, making sure that, um, you know, the companies that you do work with, um, do, you know, more often than not, at least are worth looking at and potentially investing in. And obviously the track record part is, you know, it goes without saying it's obviously super important, but I will say that depending on the stage you're investing at and we're early stage, it's hard to assess track record of that fund for at least five to seven years. Right. Because he's, I mean, I, there was a graph I saw, I forget where it was published like a week or two ago, but 
it like plotted out the chart of, you know, companies that reached a one or a $5 billion um, outcome or more an outcome meaning like they were acquired or they're cash flow positive or they IPO, right? Not just, they got in our valuation and you know, there's smoke and mirrors. And I think the, the average, um, there was, I think it was a three-year average or sorry, two-year average from a first paying customer and product market fit. Although I don't know how they defined that was set at like three or three and a half years. And then I think my average markup was two and a half years in from C to A and, um, and so on. But the point is, is that if you look at it that, and now we're just talking C to series A, series A is still really early and you still have the odds stacked against you. So the point is even the most successful outcomes, it wasn't clear until at the earliest five years in post-seed investment. So if you're looking at performance, it depends on where you're looking at it, at least for seed. I can't speak for later stage. I'm sure, obviously, timelines are a bit different. But you know, if you're investing in a company that just incorporated three months ago sometimes and you know they have yet to build a product, I mean, you can't possibly know how that's going to work out until three right. years in. Right. That's the, one of the biggest struggles that I've had in my experiences in venture capital is like, I love it. I love the job from, from sourcing to talking to founders, to writing up investment memos and to just like thinking about what the world's going to look like in five to 10 years. Hey. But I don't know whether I'm good at it. Like, I don't understand. I don't have any understanding of what makes someone good or bad at picking these companies simply because I've been doing it. I've been in the area for about a year and a half. But you don't really know because the feedback cycles are so long. Um, so it's good that you had a track record of angel investments and you can kind of see, also you were a founder yourself, that you can see how these feedback cycles um, like look like and also you have a, you know in, inside understanding of where within the cycle that they're at. And I found that I've struggled with that quite a lot, to be honest. But sure. I think um, everyone does. Everyone struggles quite a lot. That's why I think... You know, everyone has their own thesis or strategy, but for seed investing, we think it's um, paramount to over-index on the founders, mm -hmm. uh, their backgrounds, their motivations for building the business, and then to the extent that they're available, the proof points on mm -hmm. so far what the business has been able to accomplish, whether it be revenue-wise or team-wise or, or whatever else. And it's, uh, you know, you have to make, big decisions with very little information. And I, I think that's why ultimately you find that in any portfolio, 60, 70% really don't make it. Uh, or if they mm. do, you know, they don't really have that big of an outcome. And that's just because it's still a long shot from the point a seed investor comes in. So going back to, you had mentioned these smaller tight-knit VC circles, founder circles, LP circles, it seems like networking and, um, you know, building a brand is the name of the game. So you built out a strong brand on the East Coast, right? You're based in Boston and you also, you know, you're working with DraftKings, which is also based in Boston. But, you know, there's a lot of VC money and high potential startups out on the, Cal out on the West Coast in California, in the Bay Area, in SF. So have you found that there are specific geographical advantages to building out 186 in Boston, whereas 
you could have built it in SF or New York or sure. LA. Yeah, certainly advantages for sure. Uh, Julian and I's networks are, um, you know, I guess spawned here. We both have, I would argue on a relative basis, quite vast networks in New York, even compared with some people in New York. SF, um, you know, most of my backers from when I was an operator actually were from SF. So I spent a lot of time there. I have a lot of peers that build companies that live there. Um, so we, we have a pretty decent, I would say on a comparative basis to other Boston VCs, easily top decile, uh, best networked in SF, uh, arguably in New York as well. Um, and with all that said, um, we, we think that the advantages that come with being in Boston involve, you know, kind of the new age of VC. A lot of great firms in Boston that, that, that are continuing in Boston. Uh, however, a lot of the founders of those firms are, are phasing out and installing the kind of, you know, the new guard, let's call it. And it's a, a pivotal moment for the Boston and Cambridge uh, innovation economy. And we feel like, you know, it's, it's a really good uh, entry point into build, into establishing a strong brand um and given our backgrounds having you know built companies here in boston and a lot of our peers that are friends also built their companies in in tandem and still are it's it's puts us in a pretty advantageous position in my opinion mm -hmm. and when you were first thinking about you know building 186 was sf even a question or immediately it was understood we're going to be building it in boston no i don't know it definitely wasn't a consider it was it wasn't a wasn't a thought. Uh, I just felt like it wouldn't be appropriate. I think we we both live in Boston. It would have come with, I, I think, um, you know, quite drastic personal implications. And, you know, building a startup, because this is effectively a startup, requires complete focus. And so we figured we can leverage the best of SF because we have such a vibrant network there. We have LPs there. Um, and a lot of our experts in our network reside there. So, you know, a company, we can ping folks who have built great companies in SF or executives there, but while still being in Boston, right? Uh, and, you know, will we ever expand out West? I think, you know, there's a possibility, but it's not, not in the foreseeable future, at least. We're very Northeast focused. We'll consider SF investments alongside other VCs who are local in SF, but it's, it's certainly not a, a priority of ours. Mm. I, uh, I'm not sure if I told you this, but last year, uh, for two months, I lived in San Francisco while I was wow. interning for a VC firm. Yeah. Just to figure out, like, figure out what the landscape looked like out there, try to build yeah. my own network out in, in the Bay Area and SF. And um, it's, to me, it was a completely different game than, than Boston and New York, simply because if I were to go to an event in Boston or New York, I feel like there's a chance that I'd talk to some high-level investor and be able to build some sort of connection. But out on the West Coast, at all the events, all these like big time investors that work at the top firms, they don't waste their time going to these random events, right? They go to very curated, um, like very specific and tight knit already like groups, group events. Um, so I wasn't part of that group, obviously. Uh, so that's what I just noticed. I'm not sure if that's the case, but um, I've enjoyed building my network out in Boston and New York a lot more than I have in the two months in SF. Yeah. So, it, it requires uh, time like anything else. You know, you're, you'll probably find that you're just, you know, through hard work and maybe some fortune, you found yourself in the right circles in Boston and New York. I'm sure <laughs> that there 
I, I've spoken to people who feel the same way you do about SF, but in Boston, right? Mm. Uh, you know, so it, it just depends. I think it's just time, but I agree. There's a lot of, um, a lot of intimate, highly curated stuff in SF mm-hmm. compared with, you know, more general, uh, get togethers. I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, so unfortunately our time has come to an end after a lovely and fun conversation it's time for the ceremonial final ask. Okay. Which is, I need you to do two things for me, Giuseppe. One, shout out a VC or investor that you think has been absolutely killing the game recently or has some unique takes or wrote fantastic articles. And second, I want you to shout out a startup that you believe will change the world. Sure. Uh, all right, I'll take the first one first. Interesting. Well, I would shout out by Eric Paley at Founder Collective. Uh, he, um, we, we think Founder Collective, or we know Founder Collective is the gold standard in seed investing by virtue of, set aside that they, they have an incredible track record, but they've, they, the way they treat founders uh, and the authenticity at which they run their firm, um, it's world-class and it's something that we, we look up to as we continue to build out um, 186 Ventures. And we've had the the privilege of working with Eric and even his partner David Frankel, who I also shout out. They they founded like um, you know, they're they're both great. We've worked with the both of them and, and they've you know, they've uh, mentored us in different ways over the years. Uh and then I guess uh well, I, I think to be fair to all of our companies, I think at this point between our fund and our angel portfolio, our fund, I think we're in 19 companies now, our angel portfolio, 35. So we're talking over 50 companies. We won't shout any of those out because they're all changing the world in different ways. Uh, I would say the probably Commonwealth Fusion. It's based here uh, in Massachusetts. Their mission uh, is to basically, you know, bring fusion power plants to the world uh, in an effort to um you know meet global decarbonization goals as fast as possible a lot of they're an incredibly smart team i mean i don't even know how many billions of dollars they've raised at this point uh but the incredibly hard tech uncertain tech on top of it uh and you know they are some of the smartest people in in the world and and they already are changing the world it's just a question of to what magnitude and and how Mm. what a great note to end the show on Thank you so much for joining me. I am looking forward to seeing all the progress with 186. Oh, for sure, Taiki. Thank you for having me. Really riveting discussion. Uh, Great questions. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, kind of rehashing some of the, the, you know, the kind of the backstory of 186.